today's episode, we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 22, verse 16 through 23, verse 9. Social justice has become a buzzword today, perhaps saddled with a bit too much baggage. But God's concern for his people and for upholding justice has always been present. In this text, we're treated to more laws that God bestowed upon his people to protect the sanctity of marriage, the purity of worship, and the dignity of their fellow man. Do the morals which underlie these laws still apply today? Good morning. Today is Friday, December 9th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. This is the program where each weekday morning, we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our underwriter, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. Well, joining me this morning to help us better understand these verses is the Reverend Jacob Benson, pastor of St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Lovell, Wyoming. Pastor Benson, good morning and welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good to be back. No, I did say that right. Lovell or is it Lavelle, Wyoming? No, it's it's Lovell. Yep. All right. Well, you've been out there for a little while now. I know that you and I first met when we were both out in Connecticut. How's life been? How's ministry been out there in Wyoming? It's been uh, an absolute blast. Uh, so I, th- I think I mentioned last time, I actually grew up not far from here at all in the same circuit, actually. So I'm very much around my people. Uh, we have the same accent, the same slang. We we grew up around animals and guns and mountains. So it's such a blessing to be uh, around, you know, my, my people and be able to minister to to folks that that understand where I'm coming from. Now, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown. Any issues with that? So luckily, I'm in the next county over. <laughs> and, right. uh, I, I've yet to go back to my home church to preach, which I think is a very good thing. <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> well, you know, winter has hit both for you up there in Wyoming and me down here in Minnesota and probably everywhere else in the in the nation. Uh, but such a beautiful time. We're in Advent. We're headed toward that Christmas tide season. Uh, please, before we get into this text, which is, uh, as we talked about off the air, it's kind of disjointed. Now, each one is sort of a discrete law. There are some themes, but they're very loosely related. But uh, before we kind of dig into that the best we can, would you start us off with prayer? Absolutely. Stir up our hearts, O Lord, and come to us, so that as we dive into your holy word, that your spirit breathed out through the hand and the mouth of the prophet Moses, we would better understand what it means to live as Christians in a world, that we would understand better both society and true justice. Soften our hearts so that we wouldn't become hardened and think of these as outdated or passe things, but as your true and living word, which still inspires us to this day. Guide our hearts and our minds and our words and our thoughts in the coming hour. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the third episode in a row that we've been covering various laws that God has passed down to his people since giving them the Ten Commandments. So they seemed a little awkward to talk about. For for instance, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about laws regarding slaves, you know, and that's a difficult subject to understand both in the context in which it was written and the morals that are behind those laws that still apply today. Then we talked about laws of restitution, which was a little more palatable and easier to discuss. Today, 
we turn to what the ESV editors describe as laws about social justice. Now, whether or not that's a good term for it, I don't know. They had to title it something. What do you think about the term social justice? Uh, does that apply here or do you think it just has too much baggage today? Yeah, I, I know the so the ESV was edited. Um, so it was first published in 2001. Its final form was published in 2016. When these uh, headings came out, I assume in 2001, I, I don't think that social justice had the sort of baggage that it does now. Um probably even in 2016, right? It's a fairly recent thing where social justice has become a, a very technical term that, that's aligned with um, a particular political ideology and philosophy and everything. So I don't know. A part of me wants to say, let's just abandon it and not talk about social justice. But really what we should do is say, no, this is, this is our concept. This is a biblical concept and we should really recapture it rather than trying to rebrand it. Now, that is so true. People don't understand sometimes, especially with all the criticism in these last days that Christianity gets, that the equality of people, that, that people are uh, equally valued before God, male and female, slave-free, right, Jew-Greek. This is a Christian idea. You know, before Christianity came on the scene, uh, women were treated as second-class citizens in many ways, not in every case, but in many ways. The distinction between people and statures in society were more pronounced before this radical notion was revealed, which of course existed even going all the way back here to Exodus, that people are of equal value before God. It's really the inequality comes when we talk about people's, say, a perceived value to society. Society is the one that judges based on appearances and skills and abilities not God. And so when we look at these laws about justice in the social sphere, right, uh, we, we're going to see that, that God is talking about how people can uphold his ways, his will, but he's also dealing with them in terms of the realities in which they live. We talked about this when we talked about the issue with slavery. It's not that God is for slavery, but he also recognizes that in a fallen and broken world, you're going to be in this position sometimes, and here is guidelines for it. Uh, so again, we have to be very careful that when we read these types of laws from God, that we don't take the concepts and say, oh, well, this is God approving of something. Well, no, certainly not. But he's dealing with people. He's condescending to us in the way that we can understand. So yeah, it, it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, as, as not to jump ahead too much, but I mean, the first verse that we're going to talk about today is uh, a, a one of about, sorry, I just lost my place in my Bible, but it's a, if a man seduces a virgin, right? Obviously, this isn't God approving that. And whereas the Ten Commandments are saying, here's the standard, what follows after is, and you guys are going to mess up. <laughs> and when you do, here's what needs to happen for justice to be carried out. Why don't we get into it? Now, folks at home, normally what I've been doing is reading the whole text because it's a narrative and it's nice to get everything out there and then go sort of chunk by chunk, as I like to say. This time we're going to go, you know, verse by verse, you know, a couple of verses at a time and get each sort of law out on the table for us to discuss. So I will be reading from the English Standard Version. This is chapter 22, beginning with verse 16. This is going to be 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. 
All right. So what a way to start off our conversation today. <laughs> uh, we have a man seducing a, a young girl of marriable age. But it, the idea here, well, it seems a little complicated. Is this seduces in the terms of exercises kind of his authority and his whim to convince her to be with him? Uh, is this uh, sort of a pseudonism for maybe something a little bit more more violent? I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, so the uh, a, a clear reading of the scripture, a plain reading of the scripture, I think, is just that, right? That there's no sort of thought of, of violence um, or, or rape, as, as we would usually conceive of it. Uh, this is another thing that's sort of been changed with the, can I say, advent of, of a redefinition of social justice, is that this talk of consent is not just a, a, vis- or, or a verbalized consent, but it's also something that has to do with you know, all sorts of different factors that's going on. And I think if we buy into that and we look into that, we can really muddy the waters. And if we as Christians just sort of take a step back, we'll see that this is really dealing with um, Sixth Commandment issues, right? And and sex outside of marriage. And this is, um, uh, I, if, if I can just take a, another step back there, one thing to keep in mind is Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. And before that, he says, let your light shine before others. So when we're reading through these commandments, we should be looking how we can let our light shine before others so that the world may see our good works and give glory to God. So when we read this, we're not just looking for sort of a a legal precedent of how to deal with an issue, but we're looking about how we are to live in such a way that brings glory to God. And for this sense, you know, we can read all of these laws in a literal sense, but also there's a a spiritual sense, right? Christ has not destroyed them. He's fulfilled them, which means we approach them a little bit differently. So for verse 16, I mean, if you want to think of it literally, think of it this way, right? If a man has a daughter, he plans to give her away in marriage someday and he'll receive a dowry for that. Now, if he's a poor man, he'll, he'll really be banking on that dowry to support him in his old age. So if his daughter is seduced and loses her, her virginity, she's going to be less desirable to other men. So the man who slept with his daughter needs to give a dowry to her father. But in verse 17, it's still up to the father whether or not he's going to allow his daughter to marry him. Now, uh, this is, as we read, of, or as, as you said, uh, Phil, of, of marriageable age. And the, the early rabbis had a, a curious way of talking. These are non-Christian Jewish rabbis. They say that a, a young girl doesn't know what, what any of this means. She doesn't know what it means to be seduced. And so really, uh, the problem is that she's being tricked into marriage, but she doesn't know what marriage is. I think that's a very silly way of looking at this. The fact is that, that there's just sin involved here, and sin needs to be uh, justified. It needs to be rectified. It, it accosts our modern ears, but back in this time— the idea of love being the what the prerequisite for marriage is very much a v- extremely modern idea. And before then, marriage was more about uh, coming together with someone uh, for usually some benefit of both parties. And then you would learn to love that person. <laughs> love came sort of after marriage. And in this case, We see the transactional nature of marriage, and if you think about the type of culture in which they lived, it's so important that people understand the point that you made, that as I know it makes it sound like the young lady is a commodity, but for the father, 
It she is. And also there's the case where she may now, if she's been put into this position and the father recognizes that the man who seduced her uh, would not make a good husband. So therefore he's not going to let her just marry him then, which is a good fatherly thing to do. But at the same time, there still should be, um, uh, there still should be some sort of recompense because we have this idea that, well, she's going to now have more difficulty getting married. So it's not even just sort of his retirement plans, as you pointed out, which I think is a very accurate way to put it, but it's also her future that's put on the line. And if this young lady has been seduced, if we take that word in kind of a very literal sense, there is a little naivete on her part, but perhaps it isn't completely, you know, it's not, she's not completely innocent either. So it's just a complicated situation. And so when God lays out the law here, he's looking out for the sanctity of marriage. He's also looking out for how these people are going to survive in a context where, as you said, the bride price was really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in our, in our modern days, sort of the default uh, response, which isn't necessarily a bad response of, of good Christian fathers is to have the, you know, the, the shotgun wedding or whatever it may be. Uh, but there are times where, yeah, the, the dad can decide in, in verse 17 right there. If the father utterly refuses, and maybe he should, right? I mean, clearly he's the kind of guy who would seduce a young woman. So maybe he wouldn't make that a good dad or husband or father, whatever it may be. Um, yes, this, this is a protection of, of sort of fifth, sixth, uh, and seventh, and I suppose in eighth commandments as well. Well, let's move on because now with verse 18, we have a very succinct law. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Wow. So now we have witchcraft, the crime of sorcery, divination. These things show up in Deuteronomy and elsewhere, but it's very succinct here. I have a feeling that it's fleshed out more in their culture. This is sort of being recorded for posterity's sake, but you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Uh, forbidden religious practices are really a concern for God because of, well, we just had these folks eagerly wanting to go back to slavery in Egypt because they were a little hungry in the desert. So certainly being influenced by false religious practices is going to be troublesome too. Uh, but tell us a little bit more. What do you think about not permitting a sorceress to live? It seems a little extreme. As you said, it's uh, fleshed out more in their culture, and we'll actually see in the next verse. And I think it's clear that uh, if if something is forbidden, it's because it's happening, right? So Moses and and the leaders are looking out and seeing sorcery, and they're saying, "Don't allow this," right? Maybe um, you know the different tribes that they're encountering throughout the, or as they're going to to encounter throughout the wilderness, and it, and it's I don't know, it's pretty straightforward to me, right? Using magic or casting spells or astral projection or necromancy or Ouija boards, you know, all of these things are punishable by death, according to the Bible. So don't mess around with them. And it's not this sort of, you know, slap on a hand type thing, right? And so often, you know, pastors will often tell confirmation age kids, you know, don't play with Ouija boards. You know, it's, it's spiritually damaging. Um, and after reading and preparing through this, I'm just going to start saying, <laughs> according to the Bible, you should be put to death for this, right? It is a huge deal to to misuse uh, the spiritual realm and, and not just misuse God's name, but also to, to tap into the powers, which aren't even real powers of devils and demons. Uh, it's, it's a horrible, disgusting thing that destroys both church and society and family. 
Well, speaking of horrible and disgusting, the next two verses are really connected to this false worship practice. I'm going to read 19 and 20. 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. Those seem like three separate issues, but really it is talking about the uh, abominable practices of the Canaanites the, or in other cultures, the places that they're going to be encountering, lying with an animal, bestiality, right? Not exactly something we want to be talking about, it, but at the same time, you know, this is the type of horrendous practices that often are in a worship context that they're going to be encountering. And now I don't know how tempting it would be for them to join in with that, but God makes it <laughs> extremely clear that these things are an abomination. And it reminds me of the abomination of the religion of the world today. These things are so awful, and yet we toy with them as if they're just other people's opinions. You know, these are just things that, well, we have to be tolerant of, of people who want to condemn children in the womb or mutilate their children for the sake of them being a different gender. You know, we could go on and on and on. And I know those are hot topics, but still, all of these things are connected. It's all about not worshiping God and worshiping something or someone else. Right. And, um, you know, we'll see later on at the, at the close of 22, there's almost a, a, a repeat of that sort of this animalistic way of living. It's it's totally disgusting and totally unchristian. Exodus 22, 19 is a, is a great verse to keep in your back pocket, though. And if anybody ever tries to tell you um, about whatever, right, um, you know, sodomy or homosexuality or or creationism, or, you know, any of these things, if somebody tries to refute it by saying, well, that's in the Old Testament, so it doesn't really apply anymore. Oh, no. Read to them Exodus twenty two nineteen and say, tell me that this doesn't apply anymore, right? It is obviously an eternal law from God that yeah. this is to be avoided in all in all ways, in all things. Yes, and this is something that we've been talking about for the past couple episodes, and that is even when we encounter, say, ceremonial laws or very clear civil laws, Behind these is often or almost always a moral law, a law that is eternal. So if eating shrimp is no longer, you know, verboten in today's culture, there's something behind it, a moral law that still mm -hmm. applies. But when you get to something like 19, it, it makes pretty clear. But there are parts that don't apply. For instance, if you were to encounter someone who engaged in this behavior, say they're a sorceress, say they lie lay with an animal as they would with a person then it wouldn't be our job to put them to death because there's a civil part of that that no longer applies but the morality behind it as you said is eternal uh but but whoever sacrifices to any god other than yahweh shall be devoted to destruction and and again we see this set apart to destruction this is in the context of the people of israel heading into the promised land being told by God that it is their divine right to take this land, and as a part of them taking it, it is to blot out, as the Lord himself says, the people who live in it. They didn't ever really successfully do that uh, because of their own failures, but this is all well within the context of God's justice. And, and sometimes we're so far removed from that, it, it sort of grates on our ears, but it shouldn't. So verse 21, and let's go through verse 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children 
fatherless. Wow. So, you know, God is serious, right? Verse 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner. That's like a, you know, a traveler, someone, a foreigner or oppress him because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This speaks to a lot of what's going on in our world today. I think uh, people could take this and say, hmm, how do I take the moral behind this and apply it in my life today or perhaps even in my politics? I think it might challenge some of the ways that people think. And really with verse 21 is when we're starting to get into social justice as, as we think of it today. And, and it's worth, I think, just taking these verses literally, right? And, and this doesn't necessarily need to inform um, you know, how you picket or protest or write to your senator, whatever it is. Uh, this isn't a prophetic law about American policy, but it's really talking about how you as a Christian, as a follower of Yahweh, are to act. So you, Christian, shall not oppress a sojourner. That doesn't uh, necessarily, I'll say necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should fight for political protection to for for whatever group. But it means that you as an individual are not to oppress people. And I think pastors get this mostly because we have to deal with it so often, right? If somebody comes to a church asking for a handout or for help or for a warm bed for the night, uh, well, I, I, I guess I won't speak for you. I mean, I don't check IDs. I don't, you know, call immigration services or whatever or anything like that. You know, we, we just help as we can. And this is a call uh, to, to all of us to be mindful of the fifth commandment that, yes, don't murder people. But as we say in the small catechism, also take care of their bodily needs, you know, do not oppress them simply because of their status as sojourner, as a foreigner, right? As an outsider or, um, you know, somebody who's not from around these parts, right? It doesn't even have to be a different country. <laughs> as Christians, we are to not oppress and therefore care for everyone we encounter. Now, this is how I've described it before, and you can help me uh, think of a better way if it doesn't make sense. But when people talk about, say, uh, the, from a political point of view, say securing the border. Now, this is regardless of you listening at home, what your opinion is. That, that's actually not the point. But I'm speaking with someone who says, well, I think that we should have a very, very strong border. That's uh, – you know, I'm talking about American politics, obviously. So, mm -hmm. yes, that makes sense. If, that, if that's what you want to work for, then obviously petition your government. Vote the ways that you think are best for the, for the government. However – if someone should say cross that border and they find their way into your backyard and need help, that's not the time for you to exercise your opinions right. about where they should be or where they shouldn't be. That's when you do not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. And you remember uh, that Israel, Israeli history is our history, right? What's going on with the people of, of, of the Hebrews being brought out of Egypt is our history. God redeems us from slavery to sin. And so therefore we honor people. Now that might include, that might include encouraging that person to do what's right, but we don't sort of take those things into our own hands. And I think sometimes it's hard for people to understand, to hold those two ideas in unison with one another. And as pastors, I think we have it a little bit easier because we also have the idea of confession absolution. If someone were to commit a murder and come to us for confession absolution, we would hear that confession without judgment, pronounce forgiveness in the, in the name of Christ, but then we would encourage them to do the right thing. Those are two separate issues. So, and this is the thing too, is that, uh, you know, if you don't do these things, or sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Do you want to talk about wi widows and orphans here? Well, we should, right? So you shall not mistreat any widow 
or fatherless child. I don't know, that makes sense, right? That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> and if you don't, if you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, God, you know, God protects these people. God is the God of the downtrodden, right? And and very violently, he says, I will kill you with the sword and your, your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. Uh, you know, you get a sense of a little eye for eye here, but it's more about how God says, you know, in the, in the case where you mistreat people who you think are just different from you from whatever reason, it wouldn't take much for the people you love to be in that same position. Yeah. I mean, and you know, where it was early. Okay. So I, I guess I should say this, right? Don't, if you encounter a witch, don't kill her, right? That's not your job as an individual Christian. That is the state's job there. It's, this is a, a realm of, of political punishment. But here you've, we're seeing you've this, heard it here first. Do not kill witches when you've uh, encountered them. I think people knew what you're talking about. Go ahead. I hope so. Right. But here we're seeing God is saying, and, and I'm not leaving it up to the state to punish you, right? I myself will kill you with a sword. Your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. And this is an intensified call that if you see, you know, widows, orphans, fatherless children, single mothers, whatever it is, struggling in your town, your first instinct should not be, man, I wish we had more social programs here, or I really need to call Senator so-and-so. This is on you. You as a Christian need to sacrifice things and sacrifice your own comfort and your own well-being for the sake of others, right? If you break the statutes, you, you, you are committing or you're breaking the fifth commandment here. You are murdering them in a sense. So don't just pass the buck to the state to take care of them, right? Go take care of them. That is where we should be, I think, ever more active. You know, don't just, if someone comes into, you know, Pastor Benson's office or my office and they say, well, I need a place to stay for the night. The first thing I reach for is not my book of social programs that I can just redirect them to and get them off my hands, right? I take care of their immediate needs and then using whatever resources I have to my abilities to help them in the future. But yeah, we we need to reclaim some of those things uh, because that's why we're here. And I think that's a lot of what's being talked about. These people who are in today's world, they might say underprivileged. Maybe a better way to say it is just vulnerable populations, people who had been oppressed throughout history. And if you're a widow or an orphan, which is just sort of an example of that, there's more people than just those. Then, then, you know, God is looking after those people, but he looks after them through us. I tell you what, we are right now at a time for a break. But when we return, we'll review what we've covered so far and we'll move into money lending. So that should be something interesting. Stay tuned through the break. Uh, We'll be right back. We'll see you on the other side. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Jacob Benson, pastor of St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Lovell, Wyoming. Before we dive back into the text, I want to remind you that if you have any questions or comments about today's show, 
feel free to direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer your questions on or off the air. I reply to every email I receive. Now, Pastor Benson, before the break, we were just talking about, you know, God's protection of the vulnerable in our society. He protects them through us. And if we oppress others or really fail to protect them in the ways that he wants us, there can be consequences for us too. It wouldn't take much for us to be in their same position. Um, Anything else you want to talk about before we move on to 25 and following, which is about money lending? Yeah, so uh, just as, as a review, right, when it comes to dealing with the uh, the oppressed or the vulnerable populations, uh, Christ is going to stand on the last day, and there are going to be Christians who say, when did we not take care of you? And when did we see you hungry and not feed you and naked and not clothe you? And and Jesus is not going to point to, to hypothetical things. He's going to point to real examples where we failed. And, and we should be uh, ever mindful, especially during this season of Advent, uh, for those of us who are in colder places, um, that there is a call to take care of people, not only to be Christ to them, but also to take care of them as we would take care of Christ. Well, verse 25, I'm gonna, some of these verses do connect a little bit. So I'm going to read verses 25, 26, and 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. A few laws, regulations about lending and borrowing. Uh, The first is, I think, the most interesting. If you lend money to any of my people who is poor, don't be like a money lender. And then maybe even important, more importantly, you shall not exact interest from him. Uh, interesting, uh, no pun intended, uh, take, right? Because today the whole world sort of revolves around credit and taking interest. And, and that's not how God wanted us to treat one another. Yeah, especially, I mean, that he uh, makes it very clear there, right? We're, we're dealing with fellow believers, right? Any of my people who are with you. And um, yeah, this is something where, you know, I don't know if this is a time where we have to say, you know, we must obey God rather than men. But if you look at, you know, tax codes, there are IRS minimums for interest on personal loans, even between friends or between family members, um, you know, above a certain amount or whatever it is. But we're told clearly here, right? When you lend to a fellow believer, do not exact interest. And I, I, I don't know. I think we should just take this literally, but understand that this serves as a model for the way that we are to care for the needy, right? So if you lend to somebody, a fellow Christian who's poor and in need, don't do it with interest. And honestly, I mean, Jesus talks about this, just kind of do it without expecting to get it back, right? If somebody says, I mean, it's one thing if, if uh, you know, somebody says, hey, you know, I just lost my job and I'm going to miss rent for the next three months. Can I have $1,000? And you lend it to them right? Lend it without interest. But we all know that if somebody says, hey, I really need a bite to eat. Can I borrow $10 and I'll give it back to you? We all know that we're never going to see those $10 again. And we should just be okay with that. So when you lend to the poor, don't do it with interest. And then second, uh, the thing about the cloak. So if you take collateral for a loan, so I know when I was in seminary, the barber that I went to 
uh, only took cash. And I always forgot that. So when I'd go get my haircut at the end, I'd forget. And my barber would say, we'll leave your phone here while you run to the ATM. Right. So he would take collateral for the haircut and I'd go and I would whatever, get the get the cash from the ATM and come back. And if we take uh, somebody's coat as collateral and then the sun goes down and they still haven't paid us back, we are to give them their coat back. They need that for, for warmth. They need that to be able to sleep. So if you take a collateral for a loan, give it back if it's something he really needs, right? If you take somebody's whatever work truck as collateral for a loan, give it back to him if he needs to go to work even before he's paid you back. And then finally, the third part of, of lending to, to, to the poor among us, be compassionate because God is compassionate. And Jesus echoes this in, in Luke 6. Um, this is the Sermon on the Plain, which is sort of the, uh, the, the less popular uh, remix of, of the Sermon on the Mount uh, that Jesus preached, not from the mountaintop, but on a plain, where he says, be compassionate as your Father in heaven is compassionate. So when we're lending, we are to view ourselves as in the place of God right? Certainly expecting justice and fairness, but also doing so from a place of compassion. So for clarity, I can't take my, say, credit card bill and write them a check saying, I'm not including interest because I'm going to obey God rather than men, (laughs) (laughs) right? This is about how we treat one another. Uh, But I do have a more serious question uh, that I'd like to flesh out just a little bit. Um, Before I went to seminary, I was a private investigator. And part of my job as a private investigator required, uh, let's just say, regularly breaking some of the commandments, right? So (laughs) there was a lot of deception involved. There was a lot of fourth commandment laws that uh, it would be hard for me to get my job done if I didn't bend those a little bit. Nothing ridiculous, nothing that would disqualify me from the office. So any of you writing letters out there, don't worry (laughs) about it. But, you know, I would have to call people and pretend like, oh, I have a package for you to try to discern where their location was to track them down and that sort of thing. But I always had problems with that. I always had trouble with, you know, am I am I really doing what I should be doing as a Christian, even though presumably the job itself is something that contributes to society, prevents fraud, helps keep people's insurance down, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so getting to the point. So can a Christian say work for an organization like a pawn shop or work for a bank or a loan company? where they know that they'll be charging fellow Christians interest. What do you think about that? I mean, is that taking these things too literally? And if it's not, then why don't we understand God's law a bit more literally? Yeah, so we uh, covered this maybe a year ago. I'm trying to think why, because we weren't going through the book of Exodus, but we were talking about usury and interest in the Bible and on a Sunday morning and a dear parishioner came up to me before church, almost in a panic of, should I even go to communion today? Because she worked as a, as a loan manager at a bank. And, um, the, the sort of the, the initial pastoral response is always, you know, if you're worried about it, that's actually a good place to be. Right. (laughs) And it usually means that if you are sinning, you're not doing so unrepentantly. Um, I think it's, I think what gets a little messier is when we are um, dealing with a Christian organization lending to a Christian organization, right? So if it was, you know, St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Pawn Shop, then uh, it would be a very difficult business to run because we'd have to give collateral back at the end of the day. We'd have to lend without interest and all that. And it is difficult because we're in a society that, I mean, our 
our entire economy is based on not only interest, but but usury, right? Just flat out abusive uh, mm-hmm. lending rates that preys on the poor. And, and this is one of those things where we should certainly um, seek to act as Christians, but something where we should actually talk to, uh, if these things are regulated by the state, talk to our lawmakers and say, hey, this is making it very, very difficult for me as a Christian to care for the poor. And and the, the state is subject to the church. We often forget about that. Governments are bound by the Ten Commandments, even if they don't want to be. Right. And and we should fight to, to make sure that these laws and these processes are as Christian as possible. Now, I wouldn't say that everybody has to go out and quit their job, but but it's worth thinking about and talking to your pastor and saying, hey, is this a is this a, a godly vocation in, in which I'm working right now? You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Uh, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough in our charged political atmosphere. Uh, we could, I guess, argue that this is a lot more narrow in terms of the leader of the the Hebrews, the leaders like the high priest, where where Paul got himself into a little bit of a pickle. But but yeah, what do we think about this? Reviling God nor cursing a ruler of your people. Yeah, this is just like. I don't know, take it literally. Do not curse your ruler and submit to them, right? Even if you think they're um, sleepy or if you think their Twitter account is mean or whatever it is, uh, don't curse. And and curse, right, it's a technical term, right? It's not like, it's not saying don't cuss, right? but like specifically praying a curse um, upon your rulers. Just don't do that, right? Uh, you shall not reveal God nor curse a ruler of your people. And yeah, in the immediate context, there's no distinction between a political leader and a religious leader. But again, this is an eternal law to be understood spiritually. And yeah, don't revile God. Don't curse your leaders. Right. And that's why we pray for our leaders, even if perhaps they don't do things the way that we think that they should. But I, I mentioned Paul getting in hot water. Not not really, but it's sort of interesting. I, I like how he backtracks because of this. Paul certainly took it seriously, and this is you know, post Jesus's life, death and resurrection. And so Paul in Acts chapter 23, uh, he's looking intently at the council and Paul says, you know, brothers, I've lived my life before God and all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, etc., etc." Then it, those who stood by said to Paul, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul even cites this. um, I think there's a greater point to be made in terms of the ruler not really acting like a ruler, but still he cites this as sort of a, oh, you know, my my bad. I might have handled that a little differently. Yeah, I, uh, you know, the the equivalent would be if you know, what, what Paul was going through, if the president of the United States walked in and, and you, whatever, you don't know what he looks like. And he walks up to you and says, hi, I'm Joe. And you say, hi, Joe. And then once you realize that he's the president, right, <laughs> you feel like you're two inches tall, right? Why why on earth would I call you that, right? Why would Paul right. revile somebody? Um, yeah, just, and this is hard for us, right? Do not revile God. Uh, and in the same breath, don't curse your ruler. Well, there's and, a connection there, right? All authorities oh, are yeah. ministers of God. Jesus says, right, he quotes the Psalms and says, uh, you are all gods, right? Which, I mean, that's a lot to unpack there, yeah. but there is a, a, a parallel between lowercase g, God, and, and a ruler. 
Let's move on. Verse 29 uh, through 30. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. Uh, maybe one more. Verse 31. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Okay, so a couple more uh, rules, regulations, and laws put out there. Uh, this is about, uh, you know, offering, giving to God what is God's. And this certainly is connected to consecrating the firstborn, as we saw in the Passover, uh, following the Passover. Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, one of those examples where we have to sort of keep, uh, you know, one foot on on earth and one foot in heaven as, as we're reading and interpreting and applying this verse. So most of us are harvesting, so to speak, from our nine to fives. And we should not delay in giving from the fullness of our harvest to the Lord. Um, you know, that means, uh, you know, pastors talk about this a lot in, in preaching and stewardship sermons, right? If you're going to tithe, and I think that's good. People should tithe. If you're going to tithe, do it pre-tax, right? Give from the fullness, you know, give to the building up of the Lord's house, to the preservation of his ministers, to the furthering of the gospel far and near. All of that should come from the fullness of our harvest, not after taxes or after I pay the bills or after I do all of this stuff, then I can sort of divide what's left by 10 and give that, right? We are to give the first fruits. When people ask me whether or not they should do pre-tax or post-tax, I always say first one, then the other. I'm stealing that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and and in terms of a literal sense, you know, do this what you will. Obviously, as you said, you know, it's about the sacrifice and the Passover, um, you know, but we shouldn't sort of apply this as, well, the Bible says that my firstborn son has to go off to seminary and be a pastor. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this is a chance where we can sort of, you know, um, lift up our eyes sort of not to the earth, but to heaven and, and look at these things spiritually and think about this Christologically, right? God's own firstborn son was offered up to him. And God's son was like an ox who bore the sins of the world atop his strong shoulders, and he's offered to God. God's firstborn son was like a lamb who was slain as a sin offering. God's own son was taken away from his mother. On the seventh day of his passion, she didn't see her own son. And then on the eighth day, so to speak, he was given back to his father for all of eternity. And so this is a great a rich way of meditating on how Christ does not destroy, but fulfills this law. And when we read this and say, what do we do here? Is this just about writing a check to church? We can sort of peel off the scales or put the cross before our eyes and see that this is a deep Christ-focused, rich, Christ-centered passage. Oh yeah, that'll preach, as they say, for sure. Yeah. Well, now we're going to be in chapter 23, but really... Sorry, can, can I talk a little bit about verse 31? Of course, please. Yeah, so it, it it was one of those where I kind of read it and said, well, that's weird, <laughs> and wanted to skip over it. Um, but, but looking back to verse 19, where it says, you shall not lie with an animal. Uh, this is a call really to be civilized people. We're not to be like wild animals, right? We, we walk on two legs. We use our hands. We use our thumbs. We cover up our nakedness. And, and to act like an animal, whether that means you know, having sex with an animal or eating whatever carrion we find in the forest or, or whatever it may be. It's a willful departure from the image of God after which we're supposed to be chasing. To act like an animal is it's unhuman. 
And since Christ is holy man, to act like an animal is to be unchristian. And, you know, I I should add it for contemporary issue to to self-identify as an animal is to be unchristian. And it's to shun and reject the fact that God became man. So we are to be, you know, civilized, uh, normal human beings who who act like human beings and not animals and beasts. Humans being the crown of God's creation, right? Set apart, right, right. envied by the angels. I, yeah, I. it's amazing how, and yeah, I did sort of breeze over it, but I'm glad you brought us back because it's amazing how applicable that is. Uh, and not just for the sort of literal application to those who are seeking to identify as things other than human, or to identify in ways that are not consistent with the human God created them to be, but just in general, right? We're to be civilized. And we see throughout history a constant, uh, you know, civilization of human beings that sets them apart from animals. Uh, one thing that I've always found interesting, and this is my wife's pet peeve too, whenever we're watching these shows like on the Discovery Channel, sometimes they either act surprised that the ancient people had certain levels of of uh, society or technological abilities or civility, or they'll right. act like, you know, we're the only generation of people you know, in the last you know thousand years that's ever been smart enough to do things. It, it just drives me crazy because, you know, people have been people throughout history. And I think that we have much more in common with our ancients than, than we have apart. I don't think that just because we have different types of technologies makes us any more civil. In fact, there could be some arguments to the contrary. Well, absolutely. I mean, evolution has totally tainted the way we view the past. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, ancient people looked like us and they had forks and spoons and knives and uh, we didn't evolve from animals, right? We're not animals. We've never been animals as a species. Anything else before we move on to 23? No, let's move on. All right. Now, it is a new chapter, as I was going to say, but it's it's not really a new thought. It just continues. So here we have another section. We're just going to read verses one, two and three. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Very interesting and so applicable today, uh, especially for me who – my background's in criminal justice. That's my original degree. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in insurance commissions and court testifying and that sort of thing. And so to this idea of giving a witness in a very legalistic sense or rather I mean like in the legal system sense is, um, is something that hits home to me because it's always – I always had to be very careful to just – witness to just describe what I observed and not to either give value judgments or to try to get the judge or jury to see it one way or the other. I was literally just supposed to say what I saw and nothing more, even if it hurts my case. The point is you you cannot be malicious. You can't use the the system to get your way, to be manipulative. Uh, what else do you see here? I'm sure a lot. I mean, that's the whole system now, right, is about precedent and and manipulation in order to be technically right in a court of law rather than actually right. And this is totally condemned by the Bible here. Uh, sort of the first thing that came to mind was, uh, I mean, maybe it's old news now, but the, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial from 
was it earlier this year? Yeah. And they had cameras in the courtroom and all this stuff. And and then Twitter and and all the social media got involved, which of course it swayed what's going on, right? And it's now popular opinion. And just siding with what most people are saying doesn't make it right. Now, I don't even remember. I think it was like a civil suit or whatever. I don't even remember what the outcome was. But the point is, justice is not determined by by the loudest voice. You know, uh, Vox Populi, Vox Dei is is not really a good proverb to live by. Right. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's justice that needs to be carried out. Um, uh, another sort of pop culture. My wife and I just watched a documentary called Hey, Pepsi, Where's My Jet? Uh, which is fascinating. Oh, it's on Netflix. Yes. I, I, well, I don't. And, I haven't seen the the documentary you're speaking of, but I do know what you're talking about. Go ahead. Yeah, you remember the story of of the guy, and uh, I won't spoil it for anybody. But the at one point, one of the the advertisement uh, guys is asked to go uh, testify in court, and he tells the CEO of Pepsi or whoever what he's going to say. And the guy goes, yeah, we're not going to depose you, <laughs> right? Like you're going to say all the things that are not going to make us look good. So we're not going to, to bring you forward in court, right? No, you have to bring all the witnesses forward and to say, this is what happened. And like you said, not to offer an opinion, but just to speak the facts and holy smokes, when does that ever happen anymore? Well, and that's one of the things that got me disenfranchised with the criminal justice system. You know, when I was uh, again in undergrad, we we had things like legal theory and we had mock trials and that sort of thing. And of course, I was trying to be on a route to law enforcement, not the legal system. But still, you took all these classes, and they were talking about the defense attorneys, the the idea where everyone has a right to a defense, but the concept is that if you're guilty of committing a crime, you receive an attorney who protects your rights. But the way the system actually works is your defense attorney is hired to get you off the hook, and that is different than the intention. The right, intention is right. so that you – if you are guilty, that you are served an appropriate uh, punishment in accordance with the law while your rights are protected, right? It's not cruel and unusual or anything like that. But now, you, you know, it's just all about getting every little, uh, every little way to try to get you off the hook, and that's just not consistent with, I think, even what we should be doing as Christians. And this doesn't just apply. I think it goes without saying, but we should say it. If this doesn't just apply in the context of a courtroom, right? The eighth commandment, right? We don't go off and besmirch our neighbor's reputation or conspire against them. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's, that's what true justice is. It exists in the streets and, and, and in courtrooms and everywhere else. Verses four and five. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Now, this is it's just interesting because it seems at, the, at once antiquated, your enemy's ox or his donkey, while at the same time so apropos for today in our divisive world. You know, your, the, your enemy's ox and his donkey, it's, it's, it's running off. You don't laugh at his misfortune you help him, even if you don't like the guy. Yeah. Um, you know, antiquated is true. I mean, I live in Wyoming, which itself is pretty antiquated. <laughs> sure. uh, we, we, there's a, a, a case of a cattle rustling going on a few counties to the south of here. And it's true, right? If you well, and, and during the summer, you know, we're right up to the mountains here. People let their their uh, cattle, especially out, you know, free range. And if you see somebody's 
cow out, you give them a call or you call the sheriff or whatever. And if you see somebody's cow that got out and you really don't like them, you still have to do that. Right. So it's kind of cool for me. I get to preach on this verse without, you know, making a contemporary uh, <laughs> example. But but for a contemporary example, uh, you know, imagine that you're driving down the highway and you see some some car up ahead. You recognize it as the guy that you just absolutely hate. You can't stand him. He's a jerk. He always gets in fights with you about politics. He says mean things about your family. He's just the absolute he's just the worst person you can imagine. And as you get closer, you see that his uh, driver's side door is open and he's actually has the car in neutral and he's pushing it along the highway. And you, as a Christian, have a moral responsibility to get out and help the guy, whether that means helping him push it or, or giving him a ride or whatever it may be. Don't leave his donkey lying down under its burden. Rescue it with him. So verses six, seven, and eight are more about uh, this is kind of about the lawsuits and the legal stuff and the false charges, uh, but a little bit more in general. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. And I'll read verse 9, which is the last verse of our text. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And that's how this section ends. Yeah, so I think six, uh, verse 6 and verse 1 are definitely paralleled with each other. Don't show partiality to the poor, but also don't wrong him simply because he's poor. And uh, this is, again, social justice as we talk about it today. People will say that the, the oppressed are treated poorly um, in a court of law or whatever. And, and sometimes those claims are, are totally fabricated and sometimes they, they are very legitimate, right? Uh, even here in a small town, you know, there are certain people who have made a reputation for themselves as this or that type of person, and they are treated poorly because of it. They don't get the same sort of breaks. They'd probably get pulled over for going 31 in a 30 type of thing. And that's not right, right? We don't show partiality to the poor simply because they're poor. And this is where modern social justice overcorrects and does show partiality. But we also don't show part or we don't uh, wrong somebody simply because they're poor. And then in verse seven, uh, the Hebrew here is actually uh, keep yourself away from a false word. Uh, the Greek translation of Exodus renders it as keep away from every unrighteous word. Uh, this is a call to flee gossip, uh, but, but also, you know, somebody should have preached this to you when you were working as a private investigator, right? To not get caught up in, in all of these false reports, whether, you know, in the streets or in a courtroom or whatever it may be. Letting life and reputation be destroyed uh, in the courts when you could do something to prevent it is akin to killing the innocent and the righteous. And if you do, know that God will not acquit the wicked, right? Justice is always served, sometimes now, sometimes in the world to come. But we are to keep ourselves far away from lies, slander, gossip, any sort of false false word, and then also false actions with bribes, right? Don't take a bribe and also don't offer a bribe. Well, for the record, I never gave a false report, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, no. So yeah, what we see here too is the insistence that the system, whatever system really that is, needs to be trustworthy. You know, the fact that bribery is mentioned here indicates, or these false charges indicates this is a widespread problem. 
and we think of our justice system today and people as I did lose you know they get disenfranchised with it they lose they lose their confidence in it and they go oh it's just so rigged I, I don't know if this helps but if if nothing else we can see that this has been an nearly eternal problem that that descent yeah, of people yeah. you know rigs the system right israel's been out of out of slavery for like 10 minutes at this point <laughs> and they have to be told to not give bribes well, we are at the end of our time together with just a few minutes remaining. Anything else you want to cover before we conclude? Uh, I just love that it ends with that almost like an antiphon or a refrain of you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for your sojourners in the land of Egypt. And this just comes up again and again in the Old Testament. And it should cause us to reflect on what's going on, not just, oh yeah, uh, Israel is brought out of slavery. You know, in a spiritual sense, we were all once sojourners in the Egypt of sin, and we've been rescued through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea. So we should live like it. We should seek justice because a just God rescued us. We should seek peace in the land because God brought, the God of peace rather, brought us to a land of rest. And all of these things, whether literally or spiritually, should always be on our hearts and our minds. We should be thinking about them and wrestling with them, uh, about our jobs, about our day-to-day life, about everything, realizing that, that God rescued us. And because of that, we are to act and live a certain way. Beautifully put. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Jacob Benson. He's the pastor of St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Lovell, Wyoming. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show again. I look forward to when we can get together in the future. Thanks. This was a blast. When we return Monday, we will cover a few more laws regulating worship on the Sabbath and during festivals. Plus, we'll hear about God's promise to his people to protect them from their enemies as they move toward Canaan. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. Thank you.